Hello. It's episode 23, everybody. Thanks again for subscribing, and your reward for that is um, we're, we're going to sort of, we're going to juke left in an interesting direction for today's show. Um, for, you know, m- most of the run of this uh, program, you know, we're very much uh, talking about politics, you know, about being being Bernie bros and that Bernie bro lifestyle, but, you know, to be honest, all that's over with. Um the, the, the dream is dead. It, he, Bernie is no more. So we're going to, for this episode, we're going to go in a different direction to our original love. And that is the cinema, motion pictures. Um, all three of us uh, originally combined over our uh, analysis of Michael Bay's 13 Hours. Um, and then you'll remember back in episode five, we discussed uh, the film Batman vs. Superman with uh, Matt V. Brady. And on episode 23, uh, we'd like to start the sort of a Chapo film series, or continue it, rather. And we have two films that we've all watched and we want to discuss, uh, both of which uh, deal with the, the horrors of terrorism in the modern world, but come at it from different angles. But to be honest, we may not even have time to get to the second one, because the first entry honestly raises so many questions, and I think deserves... A deep dive. So we may have to roll the second film over into our next episode, but suffice to say, we will be discussing both of these films at length over on Chapo over the next week or so. So to introduce the first film that we're going to be discussing, I'm probably spending most of our time on uh, this episode. It is a film called Rain Over Me. It was from 2007 directed and written by Mike Binder and starring Adam Sandler and Don Cheadle. Now, this movie kind of came and went, but I think it's probably most accurately described as the Adam Sandler 9-11 movie. Yeah, um, a refrain on our classic signifier with film reviews. You know, if Roger Ebert had two thumbs up, Gene Shalit had his puns, our go-to is a lot going on here. And... Holy shit, is there a lot going on in this movie? <laughs> I give this film two towers down. <laughs> yeah, I give this I give this film 19 discovered Saudi passports. <laughs> what does this film have? This film Oh god, what well, what can I even say? Uh, a man becomes autistic because of 9/11. A man overcomes his 9/11 grief by playing uh Shadow of the Colossus on PlayStation 2. Uh bitches be lying. Some of the worst sexual dialogue I've ever heard in a movie. The screenwriter seems to have never met any human beings in their life. This was written this was written actually by someone who had been in Guantanamo for eight years. <laughs> actually, okay. Let, let, let's discuss uh, like I said, this film came out in two thousand seven and I think uh, sort of up there with Punch Drunk Love, it was the the sort of second or like major foray of Adam Sandler into a semi into a serious dramatic role, but probably less successful <laughs> than Punch Drunk Love, which is directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. This film, like I said, was both written and directed by a guy named Mike Binder. Mike Binder is a comedian, writer, and actor. He, he's been around for a while. I, in researching this, uh, my, my favorite gem about Mike Binder is that he directed the uh, Damon Wayans classic Blank Man. You guys remember that movie? Oh, hell yeah. Blank Man was good. <laughs> yeah. So Mike Binder directed Blank Man and a, a few other uh, films. 
um, most of which uh, he starred in or, or had a small part in. He has a small part in this movie as well. Uh, he played him. He cameoed as himself on an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. But I was probably most familiar with him from the short his short lived HBO series, which again he starred in, created, directed everything called The Mind of the Married Man. Do you guys remember this show? I remember hearing about it. I don't think I ever watched. Yeah, there's there's no reason to. Um, for some strange reason, I actually have seen one or two episodes of this show, and basically it's all about. Um, how horny and desperate uh, married guys are, you know, and, and the perpetual existential dilemma of living in a life of heterosexual monogamy with a woman, and, and, and also that women are terrible. Uh, now, th- remember that, because this is a theme that will be returned to many times when we discuss this movie. It seems to be sort of his, Mike Binder's overarching theme in his work is um, how much it sucks to be married and how rotten and uh, awful women are. I want, to say, I want to say one last thing about The Mind of the Married Man. This is the one scene from this show that has stuck with me. It was years ago, and for some strange reason, memory has amplified this one moment for me from Mike Binder's HBO series. It was an episode, and his character, the main character on the show... The, the whole arc of the episode was that how he's desperate for a blowjob from his wife, and his wife doesn't uh, suck his dick anymore. He tells his friend at one point that the ultimate fantasy for a man would be to get um, get dome from a woman while watching the Three Stooges. Okay? Oh, totally. I mean, who amongst us has not he, had that fantasy? <laughs> and he's like begging his wife for head the episode, and at the end of the episode, his wife finally relents... And she's like, okay, I'm going to suck your dick. And she, she's, he's sitting on like the couch in like the rec room. And his wife is going to work, bob, bobbing up and down. And while she's doing this, he covertly turns on the television with the mute on and watches the Stooges on mute with sort of a, a, a wry grin on his face as his wife is uh, topping him off. So basically, he actually Again. just wants to fuck Curly. Because I don't understand how that would be in any way pleasant if you did not have some sort of bizarre fetish for the Three Stooges. So that is, I think, the necessary background to get into this movie. And I, I think now we need to just dive in and describe the plot to this movie, which is in many ways unforgivable and... I, I, like really, the only way it can be described is it's about two former old college friends who uh, who reconnect and sort of find each other uh, in, in both in various midlife crises. Um, Adam Sandler, because his uh, wife and three daughters um, took a uh, let's just say a quick trip to the World Trade Center that was rather unexpected, um, and Don Cheadle because he is in a just sort of henpecked. Um, Dick fully sawed off by his wife living a life of just sort of quiet desperation. Now, we've gotten, we, I just want to say one more thing, and that's that, you know, we've gotten some uh, stick from some listeners, or we've gotten a little bit of criticism about our use of this word. And I, I, I realize that, and I take it to heart, and I'm going to be sparing here, but there is really no way that I can describe uh, what this movie's like and speak my truth about it without bringing it up. So I, and I actually watched all two hours of it, so until you do that, um, judge not. Adam Sandler in this movie plays a 9-11 retard. 
That is the only way to describe it. I mean, first of all, I do want to say that given Will's introduction to that, I thought we were finally going to be able to say the N-word on the show, but, you know. <laughs> look, tragedy affects people in other ways. What do they say? You know, grief, bargaining, acceptance, blah, blah, blah. But Adam Sandra sort of oscillates between ex- being extremely on the spectrum and then being of about 75 IQ throughout the entire movie. <laughs> like, the movie can't make up its mind. When we first sort of see Adam Sandler talk, he's Rain Man. They all looked alike, Johnson. Like Dwayne. Dwayne and my wife. He's, or I guess like anyone who posts on Twitter, or you who's listening to the premium show, according to market <laughs> research, because he goes to a restaurant with Don Cheadle, and Don Cheadle's like, yo, Charlie Feynman, uh, how's it been, man, since your family got owned by Muhammad Atta? <laughs> And Charlie Feynman goes, I don't, I don't, I don't know about my family. I don't. I, yeah, and he he says to uh, he, he says to Cheadle, he's like, I can, I I can, I can name all the Great Lakes. I can count to a million. <laughs> but then for the rest of the movie, they just sort of scrap he's, that. He's like Billy Madison. Did they send you here? What are you talking? Are you a specialist? A sp- no, I'm not. What are you talking? Hey, about? don't lie to me. Answer my fucking question. Charlie. You're screaming. Why are you here right now talking to me? Yeah, you see, for the rest of the movie, they're like, uh, Cheeto's like, Adam, you got to stop being sad about 9-11, man. And Adam Sandler's like, whoop the freaking do Go back to your Now, as Matt and Felix make reference to, it is an Adam Sandler film. And in every Adam Sandler film with uh, varying frequency, uh, Adam Sandler will do the Adam Sandler voice. The, the the angry um, enraged man child voice, and you know he does this to uh, like I said with, to, with varying degrees of intensity and frequency throughout all his movies. But even in this sort of dramatic role, the Adam Sandler voice does come out. But it comes out talking about nine eleven. So just try to imagine uh, that. Like it's a hysterical concept. The man who made his career like doing a retarded guy voice in all his movies makes a movie about the trauma of nine eleven. In the twilight of a hated Bush presidency that could only continue as it did because of this sort of saturated grief and terror and vendetta and unwillingness to let it go about the specter of terror. But what makes it so funny is that people, when it came out, and to this day, people are like, wow, that was really good. I guess it shows that uh, Adam Sandler can really get serious. When... In reality, the entire movie is Adam Sandler parading around Manhattan going, Why? Why did they do? Why did the towers come down on my wife? <laughs> Again, like the, the concept of the movie, right? Like, is Don Cheadle and Adam Sandler were best friends in college. They're, but they're, they, they're both dentists, but have since fallen out of touch. Uh, you know, hadn't seen each other in like, you know, 15, 20 years or something like that. It opens with Don Cheadle, who, like I said, is a dentist, and in the very first scene of the movie, basically, uh, he he is a cosmetic dentist who's visited by, you know, in his dental chair, an insanely gorgeous woman, who, f- basically from the first word, um, propositions him, just comes on to him, like, harder than should be warranted right like just opens her mouth and basically says it's all yours doc 
And then because he is such a henpecked, uh, you know, like I said, desperate married man, he basically doesn't know what to do and is just like, ah, bah, bah, hum, the hum, the hum. So it introduces Don Cheadle's kind of like, you know, kind of sad, semi-depressing, middle-aged life that, you know, there's nothing really wrong with him. He should be happy, but like all married men, he is just wants out more than anything in the world. And he sees his opportunity by reconnecting with his old friend Adam Sandler, whose family was killed on 9-11. And in terms of processing that grief, he has reverted into kind of a state of emotional adolescence and uh, amnesia and autism, where he like, Adam Sandler has denies the fact that he even had a a wife and children and denies that 9-11 even happened and just sort of lives in this bizarre kind of fugue state. I also want to talk about just, I mean, it's outside of the main themes of the movie, but I do want to talk about how the conniving woman who wants to suck Don Cheadle off, how horribly her sexual dialogue is written. Literally the first scene where we see her and she tries to seduce Don Cheadle, she's like, I want to put your big cock to have it come all over my mouth when you're <laughs> sucking and I'm sucking your dick you married man it wasn't it wasn't quite that explicit but it was basically like she she propositions him not not explicitly not to fuck him but she propositions to just him to say just run off in my mouth doc I, I want to make you feel good with my mouth I think was the line so the 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 horny uh patient is played by Saffron Burroughs, and Don Cheadle's wife is played by uh, Jada Pinkett. And like I said, he sees an escape. He sees an escape here by reconnecting with this um, severely emotionally disturbed friend of his that he hasn't talked to in about 15 or 20 years. And then the weird thing is Adam Sandler, when he first meets him, doesn't pretends not to know who he is or claims not to remember him. But Don Cheadle, nonetheless, begins to insinuate himself into the life of this, um, I don't know, this severely emotionally disturbed person. Because it's so much fun, because though. That's the thing. Like, he's <laughs> sick of his boring life with his family. He'd much rather, like, just sit in this guy's disgusting apartment and play video games and go watch five uh, Mel Brooks movies in a row. I mean, that's the funny thing. Yeah, they show the idea that he's connecting with him largely out of the selfish desire to get away from his family. But he's not doing anything interesting or fun. He's doing this this sad shit that just, I just, it's like, if you find that, if that is your escape, like playing Shadows of the Colossus in this guy's, like, uh, failure autism cave, and, and <laughs> that's, just, that's just brutally depressing. I mean, that's like, my, it's the same thing as Mike Binder's idea that the ultimate male fantasy is getting blown while watching The Three Stooges. It's like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> what the hell is making him tick? It's terrifying. Like, but, well, but we'll I also say, one thing they do is they go to see a Mel Brooks marathon. Getting lit in New York City, my friend. Five hours of Mel Brooks movies. They show them in the theater watching it, and it's the most painfully bad fake laughing I've ever seen. <laughs> it looks like someone is crouching behind their seats with a gun to their heads. Every like every other scene of him hanging out with Adam Sandler is Adam Sandler having a horrifying emotionally emotional outburst. Yeah, because he keeps snapping and screaming and like fighting him and stuff. Like, like every yeah, like moment. it's then, it's this boom bust cycle of Don Cheadle enjoying the childlike wonderment of uh, spending time with an emotional adolescent and trauma victim, uh, punctuated by 
um, whenever he tries to, um, uh, you know, um, instill or, you know, return to reality, Adam Sandler uh, blows up in a semi-violent explosion of anger and rage. Suck my white ass ball! And he, but he keeps coming back for some strange reason. Yeah, I call this manic pixie retard. It's a new trope. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Yeah, like, like, like every, like every, any scene that isn't doesn't end with a violent assault ends with like Adam Sandler being like, "Do you want to watch me play video games for seven hours?" <laughs> and Don Cheadle is like, "Oh my god, this is so more than wild. anything in the world. Oh, my, more than anything in the world." I don't want to get. I don't want to get my dick sucked by that gorgeous woman, but yes, watching you play video games for 17 hours in your apartment that probably smells like fucking <laughs> My fucking bitch wife would never let me watch movies for nine hours with an emotionally damaged man. It's even worth this man destroying my office and almost getting me kicked out of my uh, my job and assaulting me. And what triggers it every time is when Don Cheadle uh, slyly tries to... Um, uh, reference the fact that um, Adam Sandler once had a family uh, who uh, died in 9-11 and he'll say things like yeah man uh, must be fun being uh, single again and then Adam will be like what the fuck are you talking about <laughs> shut up <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah like like that's like even Jada Pickett Smith goes uh, oh you you oh I think you like hanging out with your friend because his family got his family got owned on 9/11, and you think that's freedom. And Don Chu goes, "No, that's sick." But he literally thinks that. Like every scene with Adam Sandler, uh, Adam Sandler will be like, "I die. Uh, I think I'm gonna freaking kill myself." And, <laughs> and Don Chu's like, "Yeah, but you can leave the toilet seat up, huh?" <laughs> Well, yeah, like, so, so, yeah, Adam Sandler lives in this world of c- completely, like, no rules or structure, and they also make sure to mention the fact that through, from his insurance and, and the federal government and uh, FAA and everything, he has a, he lost four family members on 9-11, so basically he hit the insurance company jackpot Cha-ching! and has enough fucking money. <laughs> they, they make sure to rent that he has enough money to just live playing video games in a, quite a nice Manhattan apartment. And, yeah, and then, like, they, they underscore with Don Cheadle's character how henpecked he is over and over again because like there's a scene where Adam Sandler who's now decided to be buddies with him but has no structure or rules or anything in his life just shows up at Don Cheadle's apartment unannounced on like a weeknight at like 10.30 and is like come on let's go hang out come on man let's go out let's go hang out and and then like Don Cheadle's wife opens the door and he's like oh hello Charlie I'm I'm you know um you know well, well you know he has to work tomorrow and he's like come on you can go out right and he's like He's like, he's like, Charlie, don't ask my wife if I can go out. I'm standing right here. I'm gonna, I'm a grown man. And he's like, okay, can you come out? And then he like, then there's the awkward pause as he has to look at his wife, and he's like, oh wait, I really do have to ask her if I can go out. But then again, why wouldn't you? He has fucking kids. He has a job. Like it's eleven o'clock on a weeknight. Yeah, it, it's just it, it doesn't take place in our terrestrial world. Like this movie, this movie started out as like you can tell how fucking uh, Mike Bender started out writing this movie because he definitely wrote like the rich sad 9-11 widow part first and then it turned into like all things turned into like oh, my fucking bitch wife 
<laughs> and this like this grieving man that's supposed to be at the centerpiece of this already bad movie just becomes a device for Matt Bender's gripes about marriage. <laughs> Mike Bender, you said Matt. Oh, Bender. whoops! I'm sorry. Matt Bender is my coworker at Cafe. Matt Bender would not write a fucking movie about 9/11 and family court. <laughs> this movie is. This movie is like Carl Diggler dealing with 9/11. Well, that just shows how how grotesque it is. Because as we we're saying, the real themes of this, the stuff that Bender actually cares about, is this incredibly boring, uh, rich white asshole uh, dealing. You know. This rich white asshole dealing, Bender, I mean, with, oh, I can't fuck anyone I want, and I can't watch the Three Stooges. But who wants to see that? Who's going to give a shit about it? I know. What if I sprinkle some 9-11 sauce on top of it? It's like it's borrowing 9-11 pathos to sort of give this some sort of dramatic... Texture. Another uh, another freedom uh, that 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 Adam Sandler uh, offers Don Cheadle's character is, of course, uh, saying the word "faggot" in jest. Uh, there, there's a long sequence where he's goading him into seeing five Mel Brooks movies in a row at like twelve o'clock on a, on a on a weeknight, right? And he's like, "Come on, don't don't be a fag. Come on." And he's like, "Charlie, Charlie, please come on. Don't say faggot. Don't say faggot, Charlie. Come on. That, that's offensive." And then Charlie's like. Is offensive if you're gay, but to me it's just a funny word, faggot. Come on, two tickets, one adult and one faggot. And then Don Cheadle just laughs and is like, ha, 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 dude, this is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he says, don't be a pussy, don't be a pussy, Alan. His name is Alan Johnson in the movie, which I thought is funny as well. But um, yeah, like, so, so the movie is like sometimes, you know, you have to quit being a pussy and a faggot. But the thing that, that Charlie, the 9-11 retard, doesn't realize is that to be an adult, sometimes you have to be a pussy and a faggot. But he lives in a world where that's not a reality. Yeah, I mean, so, like, just to keep you keep you posted, uh, Mike Bender's appraisals of what the idealized, fully actualized man going his own way would do are <laughs> to play Shadow of the Colossus on PlayStation 2, watch five hours of movies only eat takeout, have no friends, and say faggot a lot. Like, this is this is his ideal. Like, if only I wasn't married, I could do these things all the time. His idealized version of a man, the free man in Adam Sandler, is essentially an 11-year-old. Yeah. He, he's an adult man with the money to live out like to be a 13 year old boy but completely independent of parental authority it's very this is this is the Nietzsche of the 21st century 9-11 <laughs> yeah. was the this only, is the Ubermensch yeah. 9-11 was the only thing that allowed Adam Sandler to fully become himself as Nietzsche said okay now now I think we've established the main relationship uh, in this movie between Adam Sandler and Don Cheadle but um the plot develops in, in other ways as well. And we need to get into, like you said, the Tower 7 of this movie, which is that uh, uh, bitches be lying about rape, you know? Yep. <laughs> um, so remember back uh, in the very beginning of the movie, uh, Don Cheadle is propositioned uh, outright by an insanely attractive woman who comes in to get a veneer put in. Uh, the woman is played by Saffron Burroughs, and uh, Don Cheadle turns her down. 
uh, and just sort of angrily because he's so flustered by the fact that he definitely does want this woman to suck his dick, but of course he can't because uh, heterosexual monogamy. So he asked her to leave somewhat angrily and says, get a new dentist, you know, don't come back here again. I can't, I can't deal with this. So how does this um, uh, woman decide to react to this? Well, what she does is um, brings a lawsuit against uh, Don Cheadle and his dental practice and partners for uh, repeatedly uh, sexually har sexual harassment and, um, you know, inappropriate behavior and propositioning her, right? So she threatens a lawsuit against him uh, for turning down the blowjob opportunity. You know, as one does. Typical female behavior. The scene where uh, the Saffron Burroughs character just outright propositions him Again, it's an insanely attractive woman lying in a dentist chair with her mouth open, and she basically says, I've seen you in the elevator before, and I've just always thought that if you wanted me to do that for you, I would. I would love to make you feel good with my mouth. When that scene happened, I thought in my head, and this was in my notes as I was watching it, this is a dream sequence, right? Like, this is the scene in the comedy where it's giving you what's going on in his head, right? Before it snapbacks to reality and she's like, um, will my insurance cover this or something like that? But no, this was played 100%, 100% straight. Like, this actually happened in reality and just not in his head. And the best part is, is that um, it ends up not having anything to do with anything else because she drops it the next time that she sees it. Yeah, she's, she's, very, uh, she's very flighty and, as we found out, like Charlie, also emotionally disturbed from a traumatic event, but a divorce. Her husband's still alive. He was just cheating on her. But this is how women are, you know what I'm saying? Actually, just as a brief digression, there's a few interesting casting notes in this movie that I want to make mention of. If you're like me, you uh, clock these things in movies. Uh, more important than the main characters is the uh, the character actors who show up. And there is, quite a, there is actually quite a few good ones in this movie. Uh, Don Cheadle's partner at his uh, dental practice is played by none other than Jonathan Banks, a.k.a. Mike Ehrmantraut, Mike the Cleaner from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. In this case, Mike the Dentist. Uh, Q from Star Trek The Next Generation shows up also from Breaking Bad. He plays a uh, therapist who uh, briefly tries to connect with Charlie before he has a, <laughs> a violent outburst. <laughs> and uh, last but not least, um, Ted Raimi, of uh, Sam Raimi's brother also has a cameo in this movie. Uh, Donald Sutherland is Donald Sutherland is also in the movie at the very end of it. We'll we'll get to that because this that the ending of the movie is amazing. But uh, the uh, the other lead of the movie is Liv Tyler, who plays an important role. She plays a therapist that Don Cheadle is not seeing, but um, who who accosts her on the street to ask her a therapist questions about his personal life outside of a session or for money. And she's like, you know, I, uh, Alan, I really shouldn't be doing this. And he's like, no, 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 I got a question about my friend. Uh, it's my friend, okay? He's in a marriage, uh, he hates his wife, uh, but he but he can't bring himself to leave her. What, what should he do? And he's like, uh, you know, Alan, I really shouldn't answer this question, but um, okay, I will, which is, you know, no therapist ever would do that, ever. But later in the movie, it's revealed, Alan tries to help uh, Adam Sandler by uh, getting him therapy, right? And getting him to talk about the trauma he's experienced. And he, he hooks him up with Liv Taylor, his friend, the therapist. Then later in the movie, it's revealed that the uh, blowjob lady is also a patient of Liv Tyler's, okay? 
as the movie goes on, it seems to imply that there will be a relation, a, a romantic relationship between Charlie, the nine eleven oh, retard, and the blowjob lady. Okay, basically facilitated. This movie's idea is if people are fucked up, you just got to get two people who have trauma <clears throat> together, and then they're like, we'll complement each other, and then they'll be fine. And as the movie like goes on, <coughs> this it's connection... Actually, it's actually like if the North and South Tower fell into each other, they wouldn't have collapsed. <laughs> but what's the amazing thing about this movie, and it, it goes once again that like the, the Mike Bender just doesn't live in the same reality as we do. This relationship and connection between two severely uh, psychologically disturbed people is facilitated by Liv Tyler, their therapist. So basically... She plays, she portrays in this movie the single most unethical therapist in the world. No, yeah, she's, I mean, first of all, I like, uh, like the interplay between Liv Tyler and Adam Sandler because Liv Tyler is implied to be about, like, 24 in the movie. And so she's the ideal, she's the platonic ideal woman because she just, like, puts up with every man's intolerable shit and is also, like, incredibly hot. Like, this is, this is Mike Bender's perfect, this is Mike Woman's, Mike Bender's superwoman. Like, every let's scene. Actually, for, uh, you, that was a mistake, but let's just call him Mike Woman from now on. Yeah, Mike Woman. Uh, like, every scene with her and Adam Sandler, Adam Sandler's like, I want to, I want to put my finger in your cunt. <laughs> he doesn't say that, but it's he, compliments, like that. he compliments her tits. Yeah. He's like, he's like, like you want to know, he's like, you want to know what I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about your tits. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like he's like nine therapist. So hot. Want to touch the tits? She's like, all right, all right. That's okay. But how does it make you feel about Muhammad Atta? <laughs> Wait a minute. Ben Carson was our second therapist in this movie. <laughs> when I'm Feeling down and feeling sad, you come around and make me glad. I've got you. I love your feet I love your breasts I love the way you eat gravel To help you digest Oh, my little chicken you cry if an egg can fit in there why can't I mm. oh my little bark 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 you're my love my little Chicken likes to wear garter bells. So, 
yeah, like I said, about two thirds or maybe halfway through this movie, it becomes about how Don Cheadle is trying to help uh, Adam Sandler by getting him into therapy. And there's several interminable scenes of Adam Sandler in therapy with Liv Tyler, where she's he, she's trying to get him to come out of his shell and talk about the thing that he has been uh, blocking out of his consciousness for the last um, four or five years. And he's just like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want you want to make me talk about something. I don't want to. And and every time he gets close to it, he reverts uh, his sort of like security blanket is putting on his big uh, Beats headphones and uh, listening to music on his iPod, because that's the other thing he's obsessed with is collecting records. And uh, yeah, actually, dad rock plays a, a huge part in this movie. It's on the soundtrack, and it plays a huge part in Adam Sandler's trauma and sort of childlike personality is his autistic knowledge of sort of 70s dad rock, like Bob Seger and Jackson Brown and Bruce Springsteen. Once again, you get the feeling that Mike Woman, this is like his mixtape, you know? This is the music he listens to. And conversely, it's the movie, music Adam Sandler listens to when he is traumatized. In fact, the title of the movie comes from a god-awful uh, Who song. Which, Rain by the way, me. I heard coming out of a car radio last night while I was walking my dog, and I swear to God, I've never heard that song before in public in my life. And it made me think that this movie is like The Ring, and that I'm going to hear every day for the next seven days until uh, Adam Sandler comes coming out of my television and, and fucking murders me. I'm going, hey, get back up! Like, Rain Over Me is definitely the worst Who song oh, it ever. sucks. So, so bad. bad and overwrought. Uh, but it's perfect for this movie. Like, Rain Over Me is just, it's a 13-year-old's idea of, like, a beautiful emotional song. So it makes a lot of sense that this movie is named after that. Yeah. So like I said, there are several interminable scenes of uh, Adam Sandler in therapy. And then like the, the sort of climax of which is he, he keeps leaving at, at the point where he, he is close to saying something about his family for the first time. And at the last one, Liv Tyler says, you can leave, but if you don't say anything to someone about this... There's no point in, in you coming here. Like, and you don't have to talk to me, but you have to talk to someone. And he's like, oh, okay, I'm all right. And then, like, he leaves her office and goes to the waiting room. And Don Cheadle is there, who's been apparently coming to every one of these sessions with him um, and sitting in the waiting room for that the entire time. You know, odd, considering he has a job. But um, so he comes out of the therapy session sits down and Don Cheadle's like, hey man, like how's it going? Like, we can get some Chinese food later? And then out of nowhere, like Adam said, he finally brings himself to say, I, I had three daughters. Their names were, you know, Stephanie, Jane, and Grace. And then, and then he finally breaks down and tells Don Cheadle everything about his family. And the fact that, you know, they were on a flight from Boston on that, that fateful morning and he was going to go pick them up at JFK. And then he heard the news. And then the guy told me that the planes were in the towers. The best part of the, uh, <laughs> the best part of, of this moment of emotional catharsis that, again, speaks 100% to what this movie is really about is when Adam Sandler talks about his wife, he goes, and she was, she was so good. She was so, she would never nag. She never nagged me like other wives do. She wanted to go to women. never, never judged me. You know? 
never nagged. Like, like some wives do. Just wanted me to take my shoes off, so I didn't wreck the carpet. That's it. <laughs> she never told me. On Earth. The last night before she died, she let me eat a burrito in bed while I watched the three stooges. Ah, why did you do it, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed? It's like it's it's so grotesque, right? Because like this is this is the the sainted wife, the saint, one of the only wife who doesn't nag martyred on 9-11 for gone forever just ripped too good for this world ripped from it in this horrible act of violence the other 3,000 people or so who died on 9-11 probably probably not as good as, as they this were one. probably nagged. definitely they probably nagged. yeah, no. yeah they, <laughs> they were they were flying to new york city so they could go to family court and bend their husbands over in what we call slavery of the modern age, what family court that, like, does to men. In the in the in the binder world, there's a there's a mirror image of Sandler, a guy whose wife and kids died on 9/11, but they were a bunch of bitches. So he got to be like uh, Tom it was actually in risky business, and he's just sliding around his apartment in underwear. <laughs> that guy got a call from the plane, and it was his wife going, "I, I oh my god, I I think the flight's been hijacked." And by the way, did you call? Did you call the realtor? Did, <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you take the dog out? <laughs> anyway, I think something's wrong with the flight. But you know, if you never hear from me again, like you know, just paint the house and exercise. What's wrong with you? You make me sick. Ugh. So as the film progresses, uh, you know, Don Don Cheadle becomes more estranged from his wife and family. The more he gets sucked into uh, trying to help and rescue. Uh, this severely emotionally disturbed man who, like I said, finally has a breakthrough and uh, references and and, and acknowledges this horrible trauma that he's gone through. But from there, he sort of spins out of control. And about, you know, I guess two-thirds of the way through the movie, he has a breakdown, he starts drinking alcohol, he rummages through his house and finds a revolver. Uh, But unfortunately, there are no bullets. So what does he do? He goes out on the street, um, finds a couple cops and in a moment of extreme white privilege decides to uh, pull a gun on a pair of New York City police officers and like I said white privilege as fuck attempts to suicide by cop but uh, doesn't even get shot doing it. I gotta he say, gets tackled like that, by one. it's so blatant that it really is Mike Binder not being able to process reality because I gotta <laughs> say even if a white guy did what Adam Sandler does, I think he'd get lit up. Because he doesn't just yeah. hold the gun. Oh my god. He points it at the cop. He points he yeah. yeah, he's not holding a gun. He raises up and points a gun at a cop who has who's drawn down on him as well. And then his partner for a good, goes around him and tackles him from the rear. Even even to he a points white guy, a, he, I don't think that's gonna happen. No, they would have killed that's his ass. Mike they would have killed his ass. Dude, Mike Binder if, if the he guy was, if, in if, the uh, tweet in uh Felix's great tweet that sadly was uh, is lost to time now, like Tears in the Rain. He's the guy who has only ever had cops help load groceries into the back of his Porsche Cayenne. So he can't even consider that 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 the, you'd fucking get lit up if you did that. I don't. Pro tip, I, pro tip to everyone out there: um, if you're looking to suicide by cop in New York City, all you really need is a knife. You don't even need a, an unloaded revolver. Why did you take me to freaking Burger King? 
I wanted to die. <laughs> you know, he points a gun at a, police, a New York City police officer for a good 10, 20 seconds, just going, do it! Do it already! But gets taken to Bellevue instead. Doesn't even get, doesn't even go to Rikers. Gets taken to Bellevue for a mandatory evaluation. Um, a, a mandatory psych eval. And, you know, he's wandering through the hallways, probably smacked up on Thorazine in a dirty bathrobe, and then, like, wiping shit off his court-mandated therapist desks, and again, behaving like an unstable madman, basically. So, then, you know, the state has to get involved. And, like, the last 20 minutes or so of this movie... You always want to end a movie corpse It went from being simply ridiculous to, like, uh, just beyond the pale. Where the state gets involved in terms of, you know, what is to be done with this, um, this dangerous, unstable man-child. Uh, the state and his legal guardians, which is his, you know, father and mother-in-law... Um, who have been trying to contact him throughout the entire movie as well, um, are recommending that he be uh, basically incarcerated in a mental institution for up to a year. <laughs> um, and the, the end of the movie is this kind of courtroom scene. It's like the end of, uh, similar to the courtroom scene in Big Daddy, where, uh, oh, it's, a it's legal identical, yeah. <laughs> where a legal authority has to decide in Big Daddy whether a man-child gets to take care of a small child or in this case, whether a man-child who just pulled a gun on two NYPD officers and has basically no connection to reality whatsoever uh, should be free to walk the streets. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I really like this scene. I really like the ending of the movie because it sort of rediscovers its political message, and I'm going to get a little bit into what my theory is for the politi- you know, our Batman versus Superman-esque analysis of this movie. But I like this part of the movie specifically, the trial with Robert Klein and the the woman, uh, Adam Sandler's in-laws from his widow, because the trial is basically like, Adam, you have to stop being sad about (laughs) 9-11. Yeah, uh, Robert Klein plays his father-in-law, and and best of all, the, the judge presiding over all this is played by the great Donald Sutherland. You know, and you see Donald Sutherland in the movie, he is a figure of authority, of some menace, you know, he's got that shock of white hair, he has this sort of imperious um, aura about him. And when I, when, I, when I first saw it in the trial room scene, I was going to think, okay, this judge is going to be a bad guy. He's going to be like, slamming the gavel down, get this retard out of my court! Throw him in the dungeon for for being the crime you know, we're of the crime of crying about nine eleven. This man is too gay to be walk amongst us. But it turns out that Donald Sutherland is the most lib judge in all of New York State. He he in this in the in the universe of this movie, Donald Sutherland's character has been the subject of at least a dozen uh, New York Post editorial cartoons about uh, lib hug-a-thug judges just loosing uh, criminals and madmen on our streets to become uh, homeless killers or uh, rapists or something like that. He he comes in clutch. Comes in clutch for Adam Sandler. Because Adam Sandler, like, 
this is the trial. The trial is blue America versus red America, red America represented by Adam Sandler. We'll fully elucidate that theory later, but Adam Sandler's courtroom scenes... Are like- no, the courtroom scenes are even better because Adam Sandler, of course, is just sitting there, you know, in some, you know, tie that's, like, not even tied in some blazer that he's borrowed from, like, you know, his, his dad or something like that, and then just keeps having outbursts. Like yelling at the state prosecutor, going, "That's a bad question. That's a, don't, don't, don't say that." And like, and then he just starts singing and like, the new song. It's like, yeah, no, we and then so the the, the, the pro- do this so that I can use the title of the a movie in, as a line of dialogue. <laughs> What's so great about the courtroom scene is that uh, you know the the state the the state hospital who's been charged by the state with making an evaluation on him says clearly it is our judgment that he should be remitted to our custody he is he he is has no connection with adult reality he needs round the clock surveillance you know supervision and he needs to be in some kind of therapeutic environment um to which any you know in any in reality that would be all it would take to have him committed right but of course, Liv Tyler testifies and goes, well, I've had three or four therapy sessions with him that lasted about 15 minutes. One of but, which he um, freaked I out think- at me and another one where he told me about how much he loved my tits. <laughs> but in my judgment, he should be um, free of his own accord, right? And then the, the climax of the courtroom scene is that the, uh, the, 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 the bad lawyer, the state lawyer, played by B.J. Novak, strangely, shows Adam Sandler a picture of him and his wife and kids, to which he has an absolute breakdown and starts rocking back and forth, screaming the lyrics to the Who song, Rain Over Me. And what I love about this is there could be no better evidence that this man needs to be committed from his behavior in the courtroom. But Donald Sutherland says, you know, in chambers, he's like, I've had enough of this. You know, everyone in my chambers, we'll decide this once and for all. And he's like, this is not a matter for the state to decide. This is a family matter. This this man is having real grief and he needs to deal with that. So I'm leaving it up to you, his his parents, his mother and father-in-law to decide. Tell me, what what should I do? Uh, Put him in a mental institution or let him loose on on the streets of New York? And then, of course, the, moment, the the climax of the movie is that, you know, Adam Sandler finally reconciles with his mother and father-in-law, and they decide, no, his gentle spirit should not be in Bellevue. He should be free to be a man-child amongst us. Yeah, no, it is, it is the victory of the self-realized man. It is the victory of 9-11. I mean, like Will said, every single thing Adam Sandler does in this movie makes you go, yeah, he needs to be committed. He is actually a danger to himself and others. But the, but the judge's actual reasoning is like, hey, 9-11 was a rough time for everybody. So the movie ends. Uh, Adam Sandler moves out of his old apartment that he lived in with his family. He gets a new autistic man cave to play video games and eat pizza and just be a um, just be a fail man for the rest of his life. But that But that's a big uh, step for him. And sort of the last scene in the movie is Liv Tyler bringing over Blowjob Lady to hang out with Adam Sandler and probably start some sort of sexual relationship with him because that is definitely what two um, suicidal people need is each other. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. it's. Uh, There's no way that their you know, the, mutual uh, trauma would like reinforce each other and 
create a downward spiral of, of madness. No <laughs> way I mean, that guys, what is all love based on? Pity. <laughs> That's what all great relationships <laughs> are built on, is pity. And when two people deeply pity each other, that's when you get a lasting marriage. The vi- and I'm sorry, sorry. The the very last scene in the movie is Don Cheadle leaves Adam Sandler's new apartment and calls his wife, who presumably he hasn't seen in about three weeks while he's been <laughs> acting as the legal guardian <laughs> throughout the <laughs> throughout the trial of his friend. And he calls his wife and he goes, "Baby, like I, I know I've been distant and I haven't opened up to you." but I'm going to start opening up to you because you deserve it. And like she's Jada Pinkett's on the other line and she's like, baby, I know whatever you need, just come home. And the end of the movie is that he, he sort of resolves his midlife crisis to return to his wife and family, but sort of slightly imbued with the boyish spirit of his friend that he can finally return home again, resigned to a life of miserable heterosexual monogamy. Now, I, I have a theory about this movie that I didn't realize until the very last scene. But Felix, you, ha- you have a reading of the film as well that I, the, the, about the, the trial and Red and Blue America that I think we should discuss first. Yes. All right. So this movie came out in 2000, 2007, but judging by the hastiness, I mean, this movie does feel like it was shot all in one day. So I think we can <laughs> safely assume it was shot in 2006. The waning years, <clears throat> the waning Bush years. When Bush... This was when everyone... By 2006, everyone had turned on Bush. This yeah. was like when they needed to bring the surge in to kind of rescue uh, Iraq and the Bush presidency. When, yeah, when all your favorite blogs like Living Under Shrub or Monkey W. Bush, they were finally vindicated. Adam Sandler represents Red America because he's still distraught over 9-11. He represents conservative values like saying faggot and, uh, you know... Uh, man's right to be a man but the rest of the world around him the rest of new york is like they've moved on they're like at, they're like you have to stop caring about 911 it's over it happened get over it america deserved it and adam sandler adam sandler is like no and don't tell me not to worry tri- about bin laden as daryl worley said yeah and that trial the tr- the crucial trial between robert klein who represents like the Keith Olbermann left, and Adam Sandler, who represents the clinging right to George Bush. That is the trial for America's soul. And because this movie was paid for by Republican dark money, uh, to Mike (laughs) Mike Bender, George Bush wins. George Bush wins. Like, finally, the judge, who isn't an activist judge, who's a strict constitutionalist, is like, Everyone has the right to still be sad about 9-11. Even if, even if you pull a gun on a cop because you're sad from 9-11, you should be free to walk pulling amongst a gun us on because the, that's understandable. Pulling a gun on the cop is it's an analogy or it's a metaphor for cutting pensions of public workers after 9-11. <laughs> Okay, that, that is the. I think that's a that's a that's a, a very valid and accurate reading of the political frame for this movie. But I have a reading of the movie that's more about the film itself and it's one I didn't realize until the very last scene of the movie which like I said is Don Cheadle leaving his friend Adam Sandler's new apartment calling his wife and resolving to return home but the other, oh, the other thing is that the doorman of the new building gives Adam Sandler's scooter which is another one of his loony affectations that we haven't mentioned before Adam Sandler travels everywhere in New York City on this kind of motorized scooter Again, very boyish. Him and Don Cheadle 
take a, a tandem romantic trip around basically all of Manhattan on this little scooter. And it's very fun. And, and the very opening credits of the movie is him sort of at night, just sort of scooting through the streets of Manhattan, lonely and lost. And the very last shot of the movie is Don Cheadle taking Adam Sandler's scooter and riding home on it. <clears throat> and at this point, I made the final note in my uh, in watching this movie, and it was simply the note. My the state, final statement in the movie was, "Charlie doesn't exist." And this is my reading of the movie. Adam Sandler's character does isn't real. He is a wish projection of Don Cheadle's character. And almost the entire movie, that everything that deals with Adam Sandler in this movie isn't real. It's a fantasy of Don Cheadle's. It's sort of, it's very fight club in a way. And like, as we've discussed uh, throughout in describing this movie, the main theme of this movie is um, basically how rotten women are and how, what a, what a prison marriage is for, for men. Don Cheadle... Uh, is a character who hates his wife, um, doesn't like being married, doesn't like the responsibilities of being a family man, but can't admit to himself that he wants a divorce. He still wants to maintain the facade of being a happily married man. He tells other people, including Adam Sandler, who he has no reason to lie to, that he loves his wife and is still in with his love with his wife. The movie gives you no indication whatsoever that he loves his wife or ha is happily married in any way. It over underscores again and again how badly he wants out. Adam Sandler is his wish projection of that fantasy of being rid of his wife and kids. But it's being rid of his wife and kids in a very specific way. He can't leave them and incur the judgment of the rest of society of being the asshole who divorces his wife and leaves his kids to just be an asshole on his own. So he concocts the ultimate excuse, which is, in this case, 9-11. Don Cheadle's fantasy is to be rid of his wife and kids, but in a way that will make him sympathetic to everyone he comes across. Yeah, you gotta And that is the that fantasy of terrorism. If that happened, and you, like, went out, you'd get laid like crazy. Oh my god, oh my yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So... Adam Sandler, like when he first meets Adam Sandler's character, Adam Sandler doesn't, it, he doesn't recognize him. It's like he's not real. And throughout the movie, Don Cheadle, as he insinuates himself into this guy's life, he makes this character more and more real and fills in more and more of his backstory and creates this conflict to live out this fantasy. And at the end of the movie, when he resolves to return home to his wife, but sort of semi-liberated by this boyish spirit and he gets on the scooter himself and it's like he has resolved this intractable conflict in his life by um, choosing to stoically continue on in, in his marriage realizing that hey it's not the best I'll never really be free but it's the best I've got and I have to put up with it because that is the burden of being a husband and being a married man so he sort of puts away the fantasy uh, personality of Adam Sandler, the 9-11 widower, and incorporates it into himself at the end and rides home on the scooter. So, th so that is essentially my reading of this movie and why it is grotesque in a way, because it uses uh, the horror of 9-11 as 
a kind of device to live out this uh, fantasy of perpetual male adolescence. That is my reading of the movie. I think, uh, yeah, the problem with my theory is that I don't, I, I don't allow for the sexual pathology of the movie, which is always a problem, always a sign that your analogy has gone right. And uh, I abandoned my red state, blue state theory and co-signed onto Will's uh, autistic fight club theory. Yeah, it's a this movie is, is Fight Club. Yes. And like, what was what was the very last scene in Fight Club? When watching the two buildings implode oh my in a perfect God. pancake pattern. Oh my God. And this movie, it's like it's coming Holy full fuck. circle. Oh. What? Boom. Shit. <laughs> God damn. This movie is Dad Fight Club. Oh my like, fucking God. Like, like Ed Norton creates Tyler Durden as this, as, as, as this ego fulfillment escape fantasy through which he can live out this... Uh, live out a completely masculine world unadulterated by female influence a world of violence and filth and and rage this is kind of the softer middle-aged dad version of that where instead of uh just sort of pounding sweaty men in gross bar basements you just kind of like hang out and play shadow of the colossus for seven or eight hours at a time that's it but what but what's the major impediment to all of this women Women are the problem, and you, they have to be uh, vanquished in, in such a way. They need to be. You need women out of your life to, to live this pure male fantasy, and to do that, nine eleven needed to happen. Come on, nine eleven too. So, I think that sums up uh, "Rain Over Me." I think probably the, yeah. I think that's that's the first entry in the Chapo film series. I would maybe Batman vs Superman was actually the first one, but I think now we should make it a thing. We want to come back. To the to the movies periodically because well, they are, def- like I said there are first about London has fallen because holy shit okay yeah like I mentioned there, we originally were going to do two movies but as I was watching Rain Over Me I realized that there was no fucking way we were going to get all this done in one show the second film in our series that we're going to discuss on our next show because it definitely warrants its own segment because there's a lot to discuss in that as well is the film London Has Fallen. Which, again, t- addresses the horrors of terrorism in the 21st century from a different angle. From a more, whereas Rain Over Me was about uh, the grief and how one man uh, creates a fantasy character to imagine fucking a woman other than his wife and just staying in his underpants all day long. Uh, London Has Fallen uh, deals with the more realistic, the nitty-gritty of the reality of fighting terrorism and standing up to it. Um, London Has Fallen, it's the sequel to the movie Olympus Has Fallen. It's a Jared Butler action movie um, that we are going to discuss on our next show because it has a, a definitely a real-ass take on terrorism as well. It's worth, Wake up, uh, America. Breaking down. Wake up, America. It's worth breaking down in the way that you know only Chapo can bring you. The kind of the deep the deep analysis that only this show is capable of. And it's, it's our first love. You want and that movies real are, shit. You want that real shit, you got to come to Chapo for that. So we're going to be discussing London Has Fallen on our next show. Probably not at, at this great length because we have, we have other stuff to do. But we're going to def- definitely devote a segment on our next show to the film London Has Fallen. So we're going to give you some time, actually. Maybe if you want to watch the movie yourself so you can follow along with us and there won't be any spoilers for you. So, uh, yeah, I think that about sums it up. What do you say, guys? Uh, rain over me, rain over us, rain on us. Uh, in on the me, end, please, in my face, Beg- I'm begging you. Despite, yeah. 
despite our criticisms, we do still give Rain Over Me two thumbs up, or in the transmutable system, 28 redacted pages. <laughs> so yeah, everyone, if, if you are if you've been fascinated by this conversation, uh, please try please attempt watching Rain Over Me because trust me, uh, we've only scratched the surface. In, in this hour or so we've been uh, discussing it. So, uh, till next time, guys. Peace, everybody. Bye-bye. And my freaking family is gone. <laughs> <laughs> and again, thanks to you, all of the Grey Wolf subscribers, for listening to the show and listening to this episode. Please continue to spread the word. Uh, please uh, subscribe to us on iTunes if you haven't done so already. Leave us a review on iTunes. And definitely, if you can, uh, buy tickets to our live show with Street Fight at, um, in Philadelphia on July 28th at the end of the month for uh, the Democratic National Convention. Hope to see you guys there. Um, Chapo out. I get there. Some man told me the plane's from Boston. Some other guy says there's two plates. <laughs> then I go inside the airport and I'm watching. I'm watching on the television and I and I I I saw it. I saw it and I felt it at the same time. Popeye's chicken is fucking awesome. <laughs>